This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Babylonian conditioning is an idea that many of you may have heard of, but you probably did not understand that that was what it was called. Babylonian conditioning was, there was a scientist where he went ahead and he took a dog and he gave the dog a treat and he gave the dog a treat and he gave the dog a treat. He started associating with the about the dog. And what happened was that he noticed that he the dog, the dog, with salivate in the situation of that. That idea is called Babylonian condition. Right? Okay? Now, tonight's class, we're going to talk, talk about the antithesis of Babylonian conditioning. As one of our mitos, tonight we're going to talk about the antithesis, the opposite of Babylonian conditioning. Because in fact, Babylonian conditioning, when they started studying it, they realized it did not just affect dogs, it affected many other animals. For example, cats had this ingrained fear of cucumbers. What does a cat have to do with a cucumber? The answer is because cucumbers to a cat, in terms of association, it associates a cucumber with a snake. And cats don't like snakes. So they realized that many animals in the Bria, what happens is, is that those animals, they, for various reasons, they have an association in their brain which causes them, for various reasons, to associate it, and therefore either be happy, not happy, hungry, whatever the case may be. Audio is good? They're saying it's not Yeah? She's able to hear, so we're going to keep moving. Okay? So they found, they found out that different animals, different creatures have an association with certain things based on whatever the environment may be. And because of that, those things created certain reactionary points within the person's psychology, and therefore that was how they were reacting. Now... You may have, at once upon a time in your life, been driving on a very scenic highway and had in your mind, or maybe on the radio, you turned on, probably Kalbarama was not playing on the radio, um, but maybe you were playing like, uh, something on Spotify, some Jewish music, of course, and you, know, you heard a certain song. And because you were driving along some beautiful, scenic, whatever, it gave you a very nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. Years and years later, whenever you hear that song, it creates that association in your mind. Same thing, sometimes people go through very hard times in their life, and there's like a certain song that was playing at that time, and every time you hear that song, it sort of goes back in your brain like, oh, that was what was going on. Like, I remember I always talk with my wife how there was a certain CD that came out, album free, fine, whatever, okay, at that, at that point, it's a great CD, um, <laughs> bring the house, whatever, okay, so that, that <laughs> CD was, was, was just new when we were engaged, and we used to play that CD over and over and over when we were together, like in the car, and we would drive here and there. And we would always say that that song reminds us of our engagements, like certain feelings that get brought back when you hear that, okay? That idea is called Babylonian conditioning, okay? So most people, if you ask them, for example, who is your favorite teacher? They usually say, my favorite teacher is uh, my math teacher. What's your favorite subject? Usually there's some sort of association between your favorite teacher and your favorite subject because you associate good, warm vibes with the person, whatever. Now, if you were to grow up in a in a test tube, like if you just lived in a laboratory and somebody said to you, let us analyze your brain, you may not be like the most mo- uh, math-minded person. You might be more of a science person. You might have had ideas towards uh, social studies or current events. But because your teacher created this like aura around math, you therefore fell in love with math and you became an accountant or an actuary or uh, whatever, something that has to do with math. 
But it's not there inherently because you're like a numbers person. It's just that you had a great ninth grade teacher that was just amazing at what they did that brought out in a certain association and a feeling when it came to that specific subject. So many of us live our lives in various ways without really realizing that sort of as an unconscious bias, we feel certain feelings towards certain things. Like there are certain pediatricians that will not be the one to administer shots to the babies. They'll go out of the room, they'll have a nurse give the shot, and then the pediatrician will come in and be like, oh, he's a baby. Why? Because the pediatrician knows that it's going to have this 20-year relationship with this patient, and it doesn't want the baby from a really young age, every time it sees the doctor, to start panicking. So the nurse walks in, gives the shot, and then the doctor comes in, like, oh, and you know, coddles the baby. And then the baby is like, oh, the doctor, I like the doctor, that nurse, I can't stand the nurse. And then throughout the baby's life as a patient, it sort of starts to like the doctor and not like the nurse. It's, it's part of the idea of conditioning by association, okay? Now, if we grew up in a test tube, if we were just like nothing, we were in a laboratory and it was a sterile environment where there was no outside stimulation, we might have different reactions to certain things. You'd hear a song and it would just have no effect on you, or you would experience a certain experience, but you wouldn't necessarily associate it with other things that are going on, okay? That is that. Now, when I was a child, I remember that, I was just telling this to my son, that I was in ninth grade, and a friend of mine came over to me, and he said, hey, I have a job opportunity for you. Ninth graders usually do not get job opportunities, but this was right before Sukkot. And he said to me that I have a job opportunity for you for, to work in a freezer, wrapping Hoshanas, that they're going to clap Hoshanas. So the, you can work in this job and you can make a ton of money. A ton of money for a ninth grader <laughs> meant like $100 during the entirety of being his mom. But still, it seemed like a lot of money at the time. So I decided, I made a little bit of a cheshman and I decided that this was worth it for the future, for my career that I was going to embark on. And I took the job. And what happened is I came into this... Uh, humongous freezer, basically, essentially, of Hoshanas, and they gave you a bunch of puzzle lulavim. And the job was, you had to take the lulavim and rip off leaf by leaf by leaf, okay? And then, you have to take each leaf that you ripped off, and you had to rip it with your fingernails down into, like, thin shreds. Wait, you didn't get paid yet. Hold on. Okay? <laughs> All this work was for no pay. So you, you would shred it, shred it, shred it, until you had these little thin ribbons that were made out of lulav ribbons, okay? And then you would take Hoshanas, Aravas, which were half-frozen, and you were half-frozen, and you would take five of them, and you would wrap around the bottom of the Hoshana bundle, and then you would, like, pull it through the five, okay? So you'd wrap it around, and you'd pull it through the five, then you'd put on a rubber band, and then you would put that down, okay? That was worth two and a half cents, Okay? <laughs> So every time you did that, you made two and a half cents. And if you did it for long enough, um, you couldn't feel your hands, your face, your feet. You couldn't feel much of anything, so you didn't even realize what you were doing. But it became like second nature, second nature, made two and a half cents, two and a half cents, two and a half cents, two and a half cents. And I, th I forget how it was, but I think every 25 bundles or every 50 bundles, they gave you a ticket. And the ticket was redeemable, I mean, do the math, for like $5, whatever it was. And then as many tickets as you had at the end of the day, you would come in and, and to the big guy who had like all of his money and you would say, here, I got 25 tickets. And you're like, ooh, wow, you really worked hard. 
and he would give you, you know, $75, whatever it was. And I remember sitting there, working and working and working, and saying to myself, like, wow, this is such a schuss. Look at this. Amazing. I could sit here, and I could work, and I could plug, and I could plug, and this is going to change my work ethic, and this is going to be the best thing for me, and I'm really developing life skills right down here in this sub-zero freezer. This is just amazing. And it's your story. And I remember, like, enjoying the work because I knew that it was doing something for me. Like, somewhere deep in my brain, I didn't know what, but I knew it was doing something to me. Like, I could feel the change. I couldn't feel anything else. I could feel the change going on, like, as I was working this hard. I remember, after this, I absolutely could not spend money for about a year. Could not spend money on anything. I was like, that is like 8,000 bundles. That was how my brain, like, associated it. It was like, like, like a cup of coffee, crazy? No way. That's like 32 bundles. I, I, that was not how my brain started to, like, associate. But the work ethic, since it was there, was there. Now, if I would lock somebody in a freezer... And somebody would be screaming at them, I'm going to lock you in a freezer. In three minutes, the person would be so panicky because their brain is associating being locked in a freezer with being trapped or frozen. It would be a completely different association. So our brains, based on association, it really gives us certain feelings that we have those feelings. Now, what does it have to do with midos? The answer is, is that one of the midos, the media that we're up to, is called charitzas. Charitzas means decisiveness. It means that a person recognizes that we go through our entire lives mostly influenced by the world around us without consciously realizing that we play an active role in everything that's going on in our lives and every decision that we make or can make is really up to us if we exercise our kayach habchira. But since we usually just go through our daily lives, because of various associations, we either judge people in a certain way we feel certain ways about certain people or certain things. We make decisions on things based on certain things. And therefore, we go through our entire existence almost beholden to our subconscious rather than exercising our conscious bechira. Got it? That is the idea called charitas. Now, in order to uh, illustrate this, I want to sort of break it up into three groupings. Now, again, at the end of this, you guys are welcome to stay on and schmooze this through. But this is how I broke it up for myself, okay? Charitas. I broke it up into three ideas. And before I say them, I do want to say that I think many, many people, they grow up in certain environments, such as being poor, and then they react subconsciously in their mind later on to, let's say, having some money. So you've got somebody who grew up, let's say, their father was in Chanach, which is very nice and beautiful, but they didn't grow up with a lot of money, right? Then they marry a really cool guy who has a great job, they make a ton of money, and the woman subconsciously, sometimes, the association is we've got to save every penny. Many people after the Holocaust, right? Like, they couldn't throw anything out. And then there's other people who, no, well, now that we have the money, like, let's go crazy. Like, they, they, like $1,000 skirts for, for two-year-old girls. And, you know, like, they just can't, they can't stop spending the money because in their mind, I grew up with no money. This kid has to have money. So they flip completely the opposite. But what they don't necessarily realize is that if they grew up in a laboratory and they had no prior associations to the lack of money, then they would just be normal. And they would go to the store and be like, $500 for a skirt for a two-year-old? Are you crazy? No. <laughs> They'd be like, no, that's crazy. That I'm not doing that. But because they have their unconscious bias, they act and they legitimize it in their mind. Like, yeah, of course it's normal. I heard recently that there was a store, I won't say which town, that has two... It's not, I'm not talking about like yuntif shopping where like they have like gift certificate or gift, uh, what's it called, gift receipts, where they have like 
wife receipts and husband receipts. It's like the receipt that like you have that you when it came to the store, so you bought a skirt for your baby for $479. And they'll print you a similar receipt that says it's only $89. Oh, that's a lot. And then, yeah, and then, like you come home, your husband's like, what'd you buy? Well, I bought this skirt. And how much did it cost? $89. And meanwhile, you went ahead and you paid 400 whatever dollars in cash. They have like this little swaparoo because the person thinks it's normal. Yeah, of course it's normal. Like $487 for a two-year-old child? Like, why not? Of course, all my friends are doing it. But in reality, psychotic. But they, they can't associate that because they grew up with no money. Or they grew up, or they're being influenced by the neighbor who has a $497 two-year-old skirt. So they think it's normal. They're like, yeah, of course it's normal. They legitimize it in their brain because of the association of the people around them. Make sense? Okay? No. So, no, it does not make sense. <laughs> Very good answer. No, it does not make sense. But there are people, unfortunately, who live their lives like that. It's, it's called Babylonian conditioning. They don't realize that because of association of people around them or their prior life experiences, they are experiencing life in a certain way. Okay? So how do we change this? What is charitas? What is charitas? Charitas is decisiveness. Decisiveness, the avida of working on the midah of decisiveness, in my mind, could argue, I don't mind, is three things. Okay? Number one is the decision-making process. The bias or the unbias that is associated with the decision-making process, your motivation behind the decision-making process. It's whatever goes into how you made your decision, okay? Number two is the decision itself, and number three is executing that decision and carrying through up until the end. So, for example, let's use our woman who's shopping and spending $497 on a two-year-old skirt, right? that woman doesn't realize that there's a bias within her decision-making process. So she doesn't realize it. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to go buy my daughter a skirt. That's what her brain tells her brain. She's like, hey, Jandy, hey, you need to buy a skirt for your daughter. Okay, how much does that skirt cost? $497. That's a great decision. Right? So now she's come to that decision. Okay, I'm going to do that. So she walks to the store and she executes all the way through. She says, hey, how much is the skirt? $497. Here you go. Plunk, 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 plunk. Can I have my change? Yes, here's your $3 change. Oh, my husband's going to shock me. Um, can you please give me a second receipt for my husband? Yeah, sure. Click, click, click. And then she walks out of the store. In her mind, that is a completely legitimate transaction that occurred between a willing seller and a willing buyer. Okay? That is, in her brain, what happened. Because her bias from the get-go was totally skewed. Right? Everybody who's unbiased can recognize that. Okay. We should all have the opportunities to spend that much money, but the brains to not do so. Okay. So, this, um, this person in, in, in the step number one, they are off. We could agree, okay? So, the first thing is going to be that, that bias or the neutrality that exists within the decision-making process. So, I'm going to give you an example here of what I mean. A few, I think it was months ago, like two months ago maybe, we had a, uh, a get-together of many of Rabbi Berkowitz's Talmidah. Now, Rabbi Berkowitz preaches um, many things that have to do with doing things for the Klal and being available for the Tzibor and, uh, you know, Kiruv Kraivim and Kiruv Rechaikim and Rabbanus. So many of his Talmidim have gone out into the world and become, you know, from various levels of success, although everybody's really successful, but some are very well-known, some are not so well-known, but many of his Talmidim went out there and they accomplished many great things. So what we did was we had about 60 Talmidim sitting around in a humongous circle, 
And somebody asked the question. He said, can you share with a piece of paper why you do what you do? What is your drive in the morning? Get up in the morning, I'm a third grade Rebbe. I, I, you know, I'm in Kirov in, in uh, Idaho, in the middle, you know, what, Des Moines, Des Moines, Idaho? Ah, Des Moines, yeah? Okay, there. Okay, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the only rabbi from rabbi in this town. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? What is your motivating factor? Now, you would think they have 60 people who all come from the same place, who are all doing similar things, that it would all be the same. And when we sat down after and we were right picking out all the different things, we had legitimately, I don't want to say 60 different answers, but it was very close to 60 different answers. This person, his motivation was his father was in Kirov, so he wanted to go into Kirov. This person is, is, loves Hashem, he's like motivated by Dveikos Vashem. This person loves mitzvahs, and he's like all into like getting people to do more and more mitzvahs. This person needed a parnasa, so he went into parnasa. This person has low self-esteem, so he went out there because he could sit on the Mizrah fund, and he could give a speech, and everybody loves him, and that's why he went into his thing. Every single person had their reason that they said, I am doing what I am doing. And it was very fascinating. We were like looking through the list. We're like, wow. Nobody here is doing like anything remotely related to somebody else, even though many of them are doing the exact same job. They're sharing the same worksheets, the same speeches, the same like, oh, remember I worked with said this? Oh, remember he said that? Like we had all of our things that like, we were comparing. We're like, what? but the motivating factor for each person is completely unique. It's a very, very fascinating idea. Like you don't necessarily think about that. So every person... When you start out, whatever it is this, that the decision is, the decision could be to buy something for your child, the decision could be to go date a certain person, the decision could be anything in the world, very often it comes with a certain, like, either a, an unconscious bias, which would be Pavilonian conditioning, very good, or it would be a specific bias that, like, you've grown up, like, where you know what it is, you're conscious. You go, no, my father told me, that, like, mitzvot are the most important thing, right? Chabad is very into, like, into, like mitzvot. You've got to do mitzvot, 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 put on till and right? That's, like, their thing. Other places, no. It's Shabbos and, and kosher. Everyone has, like, their way of looking even in the Kirov world, right? So because you grew up in a house where it was mitzvot, mitzvot, that became your conscious motivation. Or, no, dveikus ba'ashem, right? I always say, like, um, right? That's why we're created, just to get closer to Hashem. So I am doing what I'm doing, just to bring people closer to Hashem. That's my motivation. I know that. I'm aware of it. I get up in the morning to do that. I'm not saying me. I'm saying a person. Okay? So if that is... Huh? If that is what I am doing it for, then that is going to be the next step, which is going to be the actual decision. So if the reason why I went into Kirov, for example... I didn't go into Kirov. I did, but we went, we went in and we went out. But if I went into Kirov, and the reason why I went into Kirov was for money. So then when somebody comes and says, hey, can I sit down with you for two hours to learn Aleph Bays, my answer will be, how much are you paying me? And if the answer is none, I'll be like, well, sorry, my schedule's booked up for the next four years till I need to leave Kirov. Because I don't have time for you because my motivating factor is going to impl- influence and impact my decision. That makes sense? Whereas if it's because I love people, then even if the person is not paying me anything, I'm going to be there because this is that person. If my motivation is that I want this person to do mitzvahs, then I'm not going to stop until I get that person to put on tefillin. Right? Be my first thing. Hey, Shalom I did you put on tefillin today? No. Yeah, great. Okay, let's go. Yeah? That will be my thing. I actually met with somebody. Um, he's, whatever, he's, he's, he's a businessman in the city. And he told me that 
he had a meeting with a, a Chabad guy, like a businessman, another businessman, and he said, the guy came into the thing and said to him, hi, how are you? Good. Are you Jewish? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, did you put on tefillin today? So the guy said, no. He says, I do, will not do business with you unless you put on tefillin. So he said, okay, how much business are we talking? So he said, millions of dollars here. He said, start rapping, start <laughs> rapping. No problem, right? You got it. If that's what it's going to take, just start rapping. This Chabad Balabas, that was what was in his DNA. That you have to put on tefillin, therefore I'm, that's how I look at you. You understand? Every person has their bias. You're building a deck, what size deck? What do you need it for? What are you using it for? What's the purpose of it? How many people do you need to fit? How strong does it need to be? Are you building something on top of the deck? The bias, subconscious, Havilonian, or conscious that you know about, that is going to make all the difference in what the decision will be. And then that decision is step two. That's going to make all the difference. That's what you're going to see if there's bias. So somebody's spending $497 on a skirt. You will know that they probably messed up somewhere in step one. If somebody's standing by the kosom <laughs> and they're davening their brains off for six hours and they say, the Yankees need to win the bet. Right? You just know like, there's something off in their, in their motivation and what they're doing. They're not thinking it through or they're thinking it through, but they're not fully thinking it through the way that needs to be thought through. And then the third step is the simplest step. It's where you realize that because I've come to the conclusion that whatever I'm doing here is because of this, that therefore created my decision to be that. Now, once I'm doing this, I'm running with this no matter what happens. There's two conflicting personalities in the Torah that I want to talk about very briefly, which illustrate two separate parts of this. And it's brought down that Noah was considered mikatne ha'emunah, from the small people who had emunah. And Noah was a big tzaddik, right? Everybody knows that song now, right? Noah was a big tzaddik. Except that he was considered mikatne emunah. Why was he mikatne emunah? Because it brought down that all the way at the end of the story, when he had to go into the teva, he faltered a little bit. He didn't go running in, and Hashem had to push him in and then close the door. Noah didn't run on his own. Reb Levenstein asked, I don't understand. He spent 120 years building the Teva. 120 years? And for that, he gets Mikatne Amuna. You're the low of the Amuna. He was the only one in his generation that was saved. And you're considered the small ones? The small ones? What does that mean? How can I be considered small? I worked for 120 years. Okay, I messed up a little bit. So the answer, I believe, is that that wasn't the Pshat. Pshat is, was that when things are easy and they just go, meaning on day number 10, on day number 15, maybe Noach was remembering, as I spoke to Hashem, there's going to be a flood, fine, there's going to be a flood. On day number 37, in year number 37, in year number 38, it's like, Noach, what are you doing? I'm building a, the building a tent, I'm building an ark, I'm building an ark. It just became part of whatever he did because that was whatever he did. So that by the time at the end, it's like, hey, it's going to rain. Like, oh, it's going to rain. I didn't even think about rain in 120 years. His amuna was that I got to do whatever I got to do, and then it just like faltered into the rest of his productivity. I do what I do because I do what I do. I'm an accountant. I go to work. I punch in. I punch out. He did whatever he did. Shad is over here is that Noah, he did what he did from the beginning. Wow, I'm so excited. I'm saving the planet. But if he really would have been excited and motivated by the fact that he was saving the planet, you know what he would have done? He would have saved the planet. And he didn't. He didn't tell one person, dude, there's a, there's a, there's a flood coming. Do tshuva, daven. He didn't do that. His motivation 
was I spoke to Hashem, and I'm going to say, I'm going to clock in, I'm going to clock out. So therefore, he didn't do what he could have done. He was considered Mikatne Amuna because it drifted into just doing whatever it is that you do rather than actually going ahead and doing it. But you find that Avram Avinu, Vayashkim, Avram Baboker, Avram woke up in the morning when he had the shach because he knew Hashem spoke to me. That's the beginning, the end of the conversation. Now I'm so excited to do it. He woke up early. We got to go. We got to shachtem. He was so excited to do that keda because he knew that Hashem was real and he knew that whatever Hashem told him to do, he was supposed to do. There's a very fascinating medrash. The medrash says that Avram Avinu himself, when he started out doing his chesed. So why did Avram go into chesed? Anybody know? Why did Avram go into chesed? What was his thing? Familiar? Where did Avram get this idea that I should have a tent that has four sides? Where did he get that idea from? Because he realized that Hashem created this amazing world and therefore is filled with chesed everywhere. Oilam chesed ivanet. And therefore he said, Mahu af'ata. Just like Hashem is like this, I too will be like Hashem. I will emulate Hashem and just do chesed, chesed, chesed. The Medrash says, shortly thereafter, Avram had his tent with four sides and a 90-year-old man showed up. And Avram Avinu welcomes him in. And the guy sits down, and Avram Avinu starts talking to him. And he says, how are you? Great. Would you like something to drink? I would love something to drink. Great. Do you know who created water? Hashem created water. Out of his abundance of chesed to me and you, he created water. Why don't we make a bracha together? And the guy said, nope. He said, you want something to eat? Yeah. How would you like a steak? Steak sounds great. Okay. Do you know who created animals for us? Hashem. How about if we make a bracha to thank Hashem? And the guy said, nope. And he did this for six hours, the Medrash says. And at the end of six hours, he turned to the guy and he said, Come on, you just had an amazing feast. I just like laid this out here. You don't can't bench something, Hashem? And the man reaches inside of his pocket and he pulls out an idol. And he kisses the idol and he says, This is what got me everything that I need. And Avram Rabinu said, Yeah? Get out of here. And he kicked the man out of his house. And the manager says that Hashem appeared to Avram. And he says, Avram Avinu, that man you just kicked out, I invested in him 90 years to try to get him to recognize me. Every day I brought up the sun, and it was beautiful sunrise. The sun set. The rain fell. I did everything to get this person to recognize me. And you, after six hours, gave up on my creature that I put in 90 years to? You didn't have more patience. You didn't have more drive. You didn't have more motivation to emulate me, Hashem. You didn't have that. And Avram Avinu ran after this person. And he said to him, Rebid, Rebgai, Rebarev, come back to my house. <laughs> he brought him back to his house. And then he sat down with him. And he said, sleep over. Okay, let's, eat, let's try this again tomorrow. And the next day, he spent half the day with this man. And at the end of the day, this person went ahead and took his idol. And he broke his idol. And he became one of the nefesh asher asu b'chara. What is the point of this medrash? Is that Avram Avinu had all the right motivation. He knew what he needed to do. Except, and he made a decision every day. Yep, yep, getting up in the morning, I'm doing whatever it is that I need to do. But at the end, end, end of the story, Avram Avinu gave up because his motivation started to wane. He wasn't so driven to whatever it was. Charitza's decisiveness means that a person gets up in the morning and recognizes that everything that you do, you can do. If somebody, chas was abused, 
if somebody grew up in poverty, anything that a person grew up and had their, their underlying motivations for however they live their life, they can change. If a person has no self-esteem, you can develop self-esteem. If a person has no money, you can get a skill, a job, money. Don't spend it all on skirts for two-year-old babies. But you can do anything in the world that you set your mind to do. And what most people do is that they just go along with their life however their life presents itself to them. Why do people go to marriage counselors? And why do people go to, you know, Shalom Bayes experts or non-experts or life coaches? Why do they go to all these people? Because they're looking for somebody to change their perspective, to give them the motivation and encouragement to continue to, cap- to capture this through. If somebody is living their life that every time something happens, they tune out, they jump onto their computer, their, their, their phone, they go into Netflix because it's like, well, I can't, I can't deal, I can't deal, I can't deal. Rather than recognizing that if you internalize the kaya that we say every morning, I have the kaya and today I'm going to consciously exercise that five or six times, you will learn, times too much, two or three times, okay? Then you will learn through a series of actions and actions and actions that you are actually in control of your life. Whereas, if you don't do that, you just become, a person just becomes like a dog, that when they hear a bell, they salivate. They're not in control of their own emotions. I hear this from people all the time, they say, but I'm human! You're human. That means you have the kind of habakira. People think, oh, I'm upset. Why upset? Because they said this. Okay, so be bigger than that. But I'm human! Being, that's being a dog. That's salivating. That means the only reason you're upset is because you don't have control. Being human means that you do have control. It means you have the kaya habakira to not be upset. You have the kaya habakira to not say something. That's what it means to be human. That mida is called charitzas. And it is not inborn. It is exactly not inborn. Everything that we do without charitzas is what's inborn. We make our decision based on whatever. Oh, my father used to say this, my mother used to say that, and of course there's Messiah and a person has to follow their Messiah. But very often the reason why we live our lives the way we do is just simply because that's what we do. Whereas if a person goes ahead and recognizes that they have the Kayach to change that, that is a great way for a person to upgrade their lives. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.